Welcome to Killer Women with your host, best-selling author, Danielle Girard. And now, Danielle's next killer woman. Welcome to Killer Pit Women Podcast, a proud member of the Authors on the Air Global Network with more than 4 million listeners. I am your host, suspense author Danielle Gerard, and my guest today is Carol Johnstone. Carol's award-winning short fiction has appeared in annual Best of Anthologies in the United States and United Kingdom. She lives with her husband in an old farmhouse outside Glasgow, Scotland, though her heart belongs to the sea and the wild islands of the Hebrides. Did I mess that up? Anyway, uh, she is the author of Mirrorland and the Black House. Welcome, Carol. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for having me. This is, I, I loved this book. I did not read Mirrorland, although now I'm going to have to, um, but it is, it's so atmospheric that there's so many things I want to talk about, but before I get, you know, I would go off on a rave about how much I loved it. Why don't you tell our listeners who have not yet read it a little bit about the Black House? Sure. Um, there's not, there's a lot I have to leave out because there's like a giant, <laughs> gigantic sort of spoiler in chapter two or something, but, right. but the sort of gist is it's, it's a Gothic thriller and it's a, a kind of unusual murder mystery. It, it's set on a fictional island off the west coast of the Isle of Lewis, which is in the, the Scottish Outer Hebrides. And it's, it's really two stories kind of told side by side um, from the point of view of two different characters. The main story follows a troubled woman called Maggie Mackay, who as a child in 1999 uh, claimed that someone on the island murdered a young local man called Robert Reed. And she comes back to the island as an adult. And again, she has very... <laughs> sort of strange motives for really wanting to know what actually did happen to, to Robert and really needing to prove that he was in fact murdered. And her return kind of threatens to expose a lot of secrets that some of the islanders would really rather remain hidden. And very quickly, Maggie's kind of forced to consider how much she's willing to risk to, to un uncover the truth. And then the second story is told from Robert's perspective. It sort of follows the last six or so months of his life, right up until his kind of untimely and disturbing death, so that the, the reader kind of finds out actually what did happen to him at the same time that Maggie Maggie does. Mm -hmm. And not only did she come to that, I mean, as a whatever, how old was she when she first came to the island with her mother? She was, she was five. Yeah, five. So she's tiny. Um, and, and, you know, she, she really, it was sort of a scuttlebutt, right? She came there to be with a cameraman, you know, her mother brought her with a cameraman and a producer to kind of like out this, this sort of bizarre, you know, new life experience or whatever she was having like a you know a reincarnation experience and um and it left the town a little as you said you know sort of shooken and then when she comes back they're like oh no not you um so can you tell us the inspiration for the story um was there oh. a seed how did this where did this come from because it's so creative and unusual thank you I usually have lots of different kind of seeds that that sit in my brain completely unnoticed probably for for ages months maybe even years and then eventually I sort of get a big idea usually almost always it's the place 
that kind of comes first and once I have that place then I start thinking of of some of the ideas that I might have had already for other stories and I kind of work them into that story so the the so main inspiration really was the Outer Hebrides themselves which I know very well I've lived there not for very long but I lived on Lewis for 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 a while um and the other kind of thing well another thing it's such a it's so difficult for me to talk about the outer heavities because they're so strange I've never been anywhere that is quite like them they're about sort of 40 I think miles off the coast of Scotland they're as kind of far west in Scotland as you can get and there's really nothing between the the outer hebrides and Canada except the Atlantic it is just they're very kind of out there on their own and it's a very different way of life there um, from the mainland and when I was living there I really I'd gone there on holiday lots and that was different because there sure. I was there in the summer season you know it was very very different when we went we stayed in I think it was 2017 we stayed for about three quarters of a year and we stayed on the west coast the west coast the atlantic coast of the really kind of remote part mm. and we were staying in this this settlement this tiny settlement of about four houses called cliff it's just this headland all in its own really and there was a beach cliff beach kind of right next to it we got there gosh it must have been the very beginning of autumn so around about september time mm. and it was busy you know, it was a very surfy beach. So there were loads of camper vans full of surfers right across the road from us. There were, you know, there were people in all the other houses and it was lovely. And when you're really far north in Scotland um, in the summer, it, it doesn't really get dark. Right, you know, it stays right. bright for so, so long. So at that point, it was still really nice, you know, and, and it's um, all of a sudden, I think it must have been about mid-October, um, we we woke up one day and realized that all the surface had gone, that the campsite was completely empty and all the other houses had been holiday lets. So they were also empty. And we suddenly realized that we were just there on our own. You know, we had this entire headland and beach and everything just to ourselves. And almost immediately at the same time, the weather kind of arrived you know because it's lovely 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 and the, the the islands are a lot warmer than the Scottish mainland because they're kind of in a gulf stream but they're very very stormy and so all of a sudden all these storms started barreling in from the Atlantic we would lose power for kind of days at a time there was no mobile signal there at all and we didn't have 4G or anything like that. Um, we really didn't have much internet full stop. The house had some, but but it was very intermittent. There were no lights anywhere. You know, it's incredibly, you think that you kind of know what that will feel like, but when you actually yeah. live there, it's, yeah. it's weird. Yeah. It's such a strange thing to, to kind of get your head around. At the time I was living there, I was writing Maryland, but that was when I kind of got the idea for the Black House. I thought there is no way that I'm not selling, setting a book in this kind of, you know, an environment because it was just so almost otherworldly. Right. Know. And um, so that was the main thing. Um, and it's also the islands are known as a 
as a thin place as being a thin place, which I do use in the book. You do. And actually, that's sort of one of my questions is I would love to have you. So explain to listeners what a thin place is. I've not, I had not heard of that, but what is interesting. And I want to come back to your experience because that is so fascinating. But talk about a thin place because that's really interesting. So thin place is, um, it's kind of, it's very difficult to explain without sounding, I always do it badly. <laughs> but it's kind of like a spiritual landscape. It's it's a place, there are lots of thin places all over the world. And it's a place where um, the kind of wall or the veil between this world and other worlds is supposed to be the thinnest. Mm-hmm. Um, so somewhere like Stonehenge, for example, in England is said to be a thin place. It's said sure. to have kind of like, you know, really, really sort of spiritual place, a, a place that's usually subject to a lot of Celtic um, legends and mythology. Um, the Vikings had a different way of describing it, but it was essentially the same thing. They had sort of something called, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation, but anyway, mm-hmm. Go they for have, it. Um, Utengards and Inengards. And okay. Inengards means inside the fence, literally yeah. inside the fence. And that's the human world. Right. And then they had Utengards, which was outside the fence. And that was where all the other worlds were. That's where all the kind of gods and, and giants and, and what have mm-hmm. you were. And so they, they kind of, they also thought that the Outer Hebrides was, was Inengards and Utengards because they kind of settled, the Outer Hebrides were one of the first parts of Britain that the, that the um, Norsemen actually settled in. A lot of the place names are, are in Norse. And so the whole the whole place is such a strange environment. I mean, if you're driving around the island, they have standing stones that are older than Stonehenge everywhere. You know, wow. they're just in fields. There are cows and sheep with, you know, it's, it. If I don't know if you've ever been to Stonehenge. I've but... never been to, yeah, no, I have not. And I've never been to Scotland at all, although it is really up on my list. So um, I think I'm going to have to, I might not go in the winter, but I definitely no. want to check out these islands. Um, but yeah, I mean, Stonehenge itself, though, is just like a, it's got a huge visitor center, you know, a massive car park, merchandise coming you know, everywhere. You, right. you can't go into the stones. There's a huge cordon all the way around. And all you can do is walk in this absolutely huge circle, very far away from the stones around them. Whereas in the Outer Hebrides, you just walk into a field and there they are. Yeah, you know? that <laughs> sounds completely... like the place to go. So I have to ask, I mean, it's it, what a fascinating place to be living um, and what a fascinating place to be a writer, right? I mean, it, it sounds, mm-hmm. I mean, the book is so, the the place, the place in the book is so, is a character, very much a character of its own with its storms and its rage and it's the way the weather changes and, you know, you're the lashing of the rain and the, I mean, it is, and, you know, you know, like you said, she's, Maggie's just trying to make it back from the little pub to her 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 little tiny cottage, the black house, and she's you know she's turned her this way and that because it's just so dark and it really does it it's it's it of course it's so atmospheric and it's terrifying, right? I mean, it, we feel terror just by thinking what the hell is going to happen to this poor woman, <laughs> and then the idea and you I think you describe the thin place with the fence analogy in the book. Um, with the idea and it, you know, the idea and it feels, so you, it's not a ghost story per se, but it does have that, like, it does have that sort of sense that there are, that there are presences of other 
beings around her that are not living, breathing, you know, humans. And some things happen, you know, some birds and things happen that are the, the poor thing. I mean, it's, it's creepy as I'll get out, but I want to go back for a second because I'm so curious about, first of all, what took you to the Hebrides? And, um, and when you say it, there are four houses in, in the little village where there, so was it just you and your partner the, for a year or nine months in the winter? How did you get supply like <laughs> I know this is not related to the book but it's so <laughs> fascinating and it clearly it cl it makes so much sense as to how this story came from that so tell just come back and do that a little bit I have so many questions okay so I am how we got there was um oh it's it's a very long-winded story <laughs> my life now is very very different to how it was in 2017. In 2017, okay. I was living in the southeast of England in a very busy town about an hour from London. Okay. Um, I worked for the NHS. Um, I worked in cancer services. Oh. And I'd done that full time for about 20 years. And I'd kind of always done my writing in my spare time, you know, at the weekends and holidays, mm -hmm. things like that. It sold a lot of short stories, like you said, but I wasn't I had this kind of idea. Well, one day, of course, I will be a full-time writer. That's absolutely going to happen. But but it wasn't happening, you know. Mm. I was just living my life and nothing was really changing. And then a lot of things, not mainly bad things really happened in a very short period of time. You know, a very close family member died. Sorry, I got yeah. quite a sort of life-changing medical um, diagnosis. And it kind of forced me to stop and look at the future. I was never very good at doing that. I would just live day to, to day and whatever will happen will happen. And I think I kind of had a proper moment where I thought, right, you need to start kind of thinking, if this is how you want to live the rest of your life, then fine. But if it's not, you need to start doing something about sort of changing life. I wasn't particularly yeah. unhappy, but I wouldn't say I was very fulfilled either. Right. Um, so I convinced my husband, my poor husband, to <laughs> to that we should leave our jobs, take um, a year and a half out of our jobs and just kind of go traveling, um, spend all our lifetime <laughs> saving, sell our house, yep. the whole thing. You know, I just thought, um, let's just do that. And we decided to to move to Europe for a bit. Um, and we decided to move to Scotland for a bit. And the idea was at the end of this 18 months, we decided, did we want to go back to England? Did we want to right. um, move to Europe? Did we want to move back home to Scotland? And so we went to, to the island of Cyprus um, for, it was only about six or seven months because that was all we could afford. Um, but it was beautiful. I'd ha all had this um, idea in my head forever that I wanted to write a novel on a Greek island yes you know, this is my, <laughs> doesn't my sound dream. terrible to me right right no and so that's what I, that's what I did and then when the money started getting really low we came back and we just kind of moved around Scotland because by that point we'd been in England 20 years we'd really never we, when we went home we just went home to see our families you know we always went to the same place and so it was really nice just to kind of stay in the highlands and then also the islands because we loved um, the islands in particular in the west. So that's what we did. We just kind of moved around. I mean, 
we ended up um, after staying in the Highlands for a bit, which was freezing. Uh, we ended up going to to the Isle of um, Lewis and Harris, and then we found a place and just decided, right, why don't we just stay here? Because, like I said, when we first got there, it was lovely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then, yeah. So, so when you were talking about those other houses in Cliff, they were. We didn't realize they were all holiday lets. We thought that you know there were other people, and we realized very quickly that you know there there wasn't anybody that we were going to have to be able to kind of befriend because they right. were constantly leaving. Right. Um. And then when they were gone, it really was. The cliff itself was on its own headland, but it was also on a, a, a bigger headland that had a couple of other villages on it. But they were a few miles away. So you were, yeah. you were kind of isolated almost three times over. You know, there was nothing. Um, you could go days without seeing a soul. We used to go to um, Stornoway which is the main town um, uh, on Lewis, and it's on the east coast. All the main kind of places were on the east. And it would take us the best part of a day. We'd sort of trek over in, there in the car. We would get all our, our, we'd restock, we'd refuel. We'd get our kind of fix of, of going to the pub and going to a restaurant and doing all these right. things you know, back in civilization. And then we would drive back at, in the dark. Um, and oh. yeah, and, and there we would stay for another month before oh. we went back. <laughs> wow. So, well, you know, I, my husband and I, before we had children in, uh, early in our marriage, spent a year and traveled, um, similarly backpacked really, and kind of made a little circle around the world. Although, you know, when you make a tiny circle, wow. you don't get to any places. But um, I always say to people, we've been married 28 years, but I'm always like, but that one year counts for another 10. Because the intensity of, I mean, and it's, and we had other, you know, we could go and, you know, when we were in, wherever we could go and talk to people that were not each other, but that, it, the intensity of that is such an interesting experience, right? I mean, it really tests mm -hmm. how much you guys can um, put up with. So good for you guys. That's amazing. Um, and what, I mean, and clearly you weren't writing, so you were writing Miraland there. And again, I'm sad I haven't read Miraland because I'm so curious. Uh, and I know it was incredibly well received. Um, Stephen King calls it dark and devious and beautifully written. So that's, I don't know if you can do much better than that. Um, <laughs> but that, you know, was that, is that also set in, is, is, is location a really big character in Miraland? It, it is, it is, but it's in a very different, ways so Mirrorland is set in a house um, a very big <clears throat> old creepy house um, and originally I'd planned when I'd kind of first been thinking about it again the setting came first the house came mm -hmm. first before anything else I was planning on setting it in the, the Scottish Highlands somewhere kind of in the middle of nowhere and have this big huge crumbling mansion a bit like um, the haunting of Hill House you know that yeah. kind of vibe yeah yeah but um but when I started plotting it, I thought oh, it doesn't really work. And my grandparents, um, they died in the 90s, but they they had this Georgian villa 
um, in Edinburgh. So right in the middle of the capital city, it was near the, yeah. the sort of dock side. Wow. And um, every time I kept thinking about the story, I kept setting it in there. It was a, it was a completely mad house. It was falling to pieces, but it had all these creepy little rooms that seemed mm -hmm. to serve no function. And it had this big vaulted cellar that we weren't allowed in because it was, you know, on the verge of collapse. Absolutely. Wow. You know, there were all sorts of parts of the house that were great for when you were a kid, probably not so great to live in as an adult. But right. <laughs> and so that's what where it ended up being set in, yeah. in my grandparents' house because Mirrorland is about um things that go on behind closed doors that, that nobody else would would ever ever believe would happen mm -hmm. um, or suspect would happen and I kind of like the idea of having this big creepy old house but sticking it in a capital city you know right is surrounded by all these other right. other right. places and it's like, like hiding in plain sight right exactly right. exactly I thought that was kind of a bit more insidious a bit creepier so, <laughs> it is, so that was right? exciting oh well that I'm I will I'm really looking forward to that that so this is but it it um I mean, the, the place you describe and I mean, what you guys, I mean, at least Maggie has a small community of people that she can talk to. It's amazing. So, um, and one of the sort of, we talked a little bit about this sort of the re idea of reincarnation. Something you mentioned is that a lot of kids believe um, they that they were, they're reincarnated. And I wasn't sure if that's a true phenomenon. And did you come upon that in your research? I hadn't heard that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, it was years ago. I think that was one of the these things that got stuck in my brain at some point and it's just mm -hmm. sort of waited there um yeah no I'd I'd read I can't remember exactly um where or when I read about it but I I did and it was so interesting and it was so interesting that I ended up buying um a book I can't for the life of me remember what it, what it was called but it was this this um psychologist and he had collected over decades all these stories he would kind of go around the world and he would talk to these children every time they kind of claimed that, that, that mm -hmm. they were somebody else and it was it was so interesting because it was all kinds of cultures it was all kinds of um religions it, interesting. it you know it was it was it wasn't just because mm -hmm. that's what that particular culture believes in and a lot of things that they would say um would not really be verifiable in a sense that you could never actually prove that yes this person existed because what they remembered wasn't you know right. oh, my name was this 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 and this is where I live right but sometimes it was very kind of specific credible and yeah and specific and sometimes they'd speak to say a family member of the person that they think that this was and they would believe it also so it's it's a really fascinating really fascinating subject and it is what generally tends to happen to these kids is that they they talk about it incessantly they believe really a lot of them that they are still this person I think it's quite um distressing for a lot of these children yeah. because they're like oh, well, what's going on you know right, right? <laughs> right. what's happened um right. and then it kind of peaks I think they around about the age of four to six and then generally when they get to about eight years old they suddenly forget or it, they gradually forget yeah. or it just goes and eventually they don't remember it at all they don't remember thinking these things 
And there is a kind of school of thought, I think around eight years old, your brain, I'm, I'm probably butchering this explanation as well, but your brain undergoes some sort of physiological and um, anatomical change. It's the kind of the last big change in, in your brain as you're growing up. And so they reckon that the, at this point, that's why they then kind of forget everything that they, they that they remembered so it's it's just really interesting I mean when you read some of the stories you just think wow you know right. and these kids are so consistent they never change what right right well and Maggie's story and you know it's interesting because of course you know the the thing with Maggie's story and her and her own question is you know we we think as skeptics we're like well what, what story was her mother feeding her or you know mm. who was after money for something like that's of course what you know but it does um you know, and she as a grown up is like, what was, you know, what exactly was that? And yet, you know, um, it is such a part of her, for, of her youth and her, her, um, growing up and she, she really has to, you know, go back and explore it. Um, sort of despite, like you said, the risks of doing that. Um, anyway, it's mm. such a fascinating, I found that really fascinating and I love to hear, I mean, I love the idea that we just really don't know, right. We do not know. Yeah what happens after this um no matter what your you know religion is we just have, we really don't have any idea which is you know is such an so ripe with opportunities for novelists and i love oh, that you um, dance around that so another um thing that i had never heard of um aside from the thin place is the and i'm going to mess this up because it's french in even though my name is french i cannot speak it <laughs> my sister should be here she could help me it's the jama vu which is the opposite of deja vu and can you that mm -hmm. comes up in the book and i and i had never heard of that can you explain that for reader uh, listeners yeah so it, it it i hadn't heard of it actually until i started looking into um this this whole more well, maggie is is bipolar um and so a lot of her issues stem from the fact that she she can't 100% always trust herself or her, yeah. her kind of judgments, uh, particularly at the beginning of the novel because she's just had a kind of major psychotic episode and she's just got out of the hospital and there's all sorts of other things going on in her life. Um, and she, jamais vu means never seen. So deja vu means already seen. Yeah, right. <laughs> and and jamais vu means never seen. And it's kind of the opposite, like you said, of, of deja vu in that if you're sort of going through it, you everything, people that you know or places that you know suddenly become completely unfamiliar. It's as if they're completely strange, bizarre, and you've never seen this person or this, this place before. Um, and it's if you have bipolar one, you can sometimes um, have jamais vu. It's kind of a, a disassociation um, mm. where you just, you can no longer kind of understand what you're you're seeing. Well, you can understand it, but you just don't recognize it. Right. It feels and like it's somebody else's life. Exactly. Yeah. Like, like yeah. you've you're just, again, a bit like um, these kids where you're just like, I don't know what's happening because I'm not this person, you know? Right. Um, so it's really interesting. I find these kind of things really interesting. I think if I had my time over and um, if I was going back to university or whatever, I would love to study um, psychology and things like that because it's so interesting. It and is I really so, think, yeah. Oh, can you imagine experiencing that? I mean, it must be terrifying. Mm -hmm. It must be yes. absolutely terrifying. 
terrifying. It sounds horrible. <laughs> um, yes. And actually, since we're talking about her, um, you know, I want to talk about mental illness because that's a, you know, her, that for Maggie, that's a really big weight, uh, of course. Mm. And then, of course, you know, if you're, you know, when you're mentally ill, everything, every sort of strange thing that happens to you becomes a question of, is that really happening to me? Did I invent that? You know, or did I, am I remembering something incorrectly? Um, is this real or imagined? And, you know, in this, in that, living in that is got to be a really, a very much a, a form of torture, I think. Um, mm. There is this wonderful line you write on page 50. I have a, I have a tendency to mark all my favorite places, but this one I wrote out because it's so, it's so accurate and it's so relevant and I loved it so much. And it's, it is, um, mental illness is a tool of repression and ignorance. It's a way for men, for society to persecute us, to call us hysterical, to keep us witches inside our cages. And I got shivers. I just gave myself shivers again, reading it out loud, because I think it is so true. And the idea of sort of, it's not, I mean, I think mental illness for anybody is, is, you know, is a tool, of, you know, society uses that tool of repression, but particularly I think for women, right? It's this idea of, oh, she's hysterical. Like she controls her responses and she she's just being dramatic. Um, yeah. And I wanted you to sort of talk about that a little because I just felt like that really strikes me to a core about how we, society treats both mental illness and women, you know, mm -hmm. and emotion to some extent, right? That's hysteria. Yeah. So. Yeah, oh, definitely. I completely agree. Um, I was a bit weary of making Maggie bipolar at first because I didn't want to use it just as a kind of vehicle to make her an unreliable narrator or, you know, oh, well, you know, she's thinking that because she has, has this mental illness. I, I didn't want to kind of use it as a gimmick. And I mean, I don't have bipolar. I have absolutely no idea yeah. what that would feel like. So I did do a lot of research. I spoke to Mind, which is a British um, charity who kind of gave me loads of information mm -hmm. and put me in touch with people um, who were willing to talk to me about their own experiences <clears throat> with having it. And I thought, I want to use this because the, the line that you read, that's um, Maggie's mother. Um, mm -hmm. That's what her opinion is because she was also suffering from right. illness. And I wanted it to be, Maggie is so conflicted because her mum is very different from her. Her mum right. doesn't believe that she's got any kind of mental illness at all. Her mum thinks that she's psychic. Um, her mum believes that she can sort of communicate with the dead and that she can see visions and things like that. And there is this ambiguity throughout the book as to whether or not she can. Because, right. you know... You could you could be both. There's the, and it's the same with with Maggie, um, and and thinking that she was reincarnated. You know, she's she doesn't know whether that's her mom's influence. She doesn't know right. whether that's her her mental illness sort of right. manifesting. She doesn't right. know if it's true. So it was it was a way really to look at all of that, and then also exactly as you say, the way that women in particular are treated um in those sorts of situations it it doesn't just affect them in the here and now it can affect them for their whole lives Maggie is so uncertain of herself mm -hmm. and it's as much because of outside influences and prejudices as it is her own kind of thoughts of and so I really really wanted to talk about that but 
it was quite scary I've never really written about mental illness before mm. and I really didn't want anybody who did say have bipolar one to kind of read it and go oh that's you know that's awful that she's using that yeah in that way. I don't hard. I mean you know, I hope that you don't never get that response because to be honest, I think we need to see more of it, right? We need to see it normalized because, mm -hmm. you know, people, oh, bipolar, that person is just going to like rant when, you know, or, or they're going to be all manic and then they're going to be in bed for a month. I mean, I think it's, I think it, there are, it's, it's such a, it's such a continuum. And until we start to talk about it and, and how, it, you know, how it looks different every, you know, in different cases and, and all mm. of that, I think it just has, its it has a weight and the people who suffer from it um, don't, you know, we all want to see ourselves in the pages, right? And we all want to, and it's not, Maggie is not an unlikable character. She's not an evil person. So we're not, you're not, in my mind, you're not making the disease into something that it's not, you're, it's, she grabs, mm. she really struggles and she's really trying to figure herself out. And I can't imagine that anybody suffering from that wouldn't be you know feel like that was a really fair treatment of it so I'm glad you did I found that I really do find and I think it's you know the prevalence of mental illness not necessarily bipolarism but every you know so much and now after the pandemic in particular right the world is mm. mental illness is you know it's potentially our next you know epidemic right yeah, I mean it's absolutely. just yeah so I really appreciated that. And, I, you know, I appreciated that also that there was no like clean fix, right? I mean, there's just not, yeah. you don't just be like, okay, well, we solved that. And isn't that, um, you know, isn't that lovely? Because uh, that's <laughs> obviously not how it works. Um, no. But, so the other thing I love about this book is it's really a book about secrets. Um, you know, everybody, like you said, everybody sort of is holding something so tightly. And the idea is that there's also some, some line you you talk about how we hold them so tightly that they sort of infect us right and that mm. you know letting them out um is a way of you know we hope that it um, will release the burden uh, um but unfortunately it doesn't <laughs> you know the idea yeah. that that it isn't really you know that isn't as effective and I, I kind of wanted to sort of hear you talk about that because I think that's such a big part of this book too is how mm. much we hold um private and, and to our detriment almost right yeah oh definitely um I think I really love gothic stories I always try to make what I write feel quite gothic and I think that one of the main things about gothic stories is that there is always this big kind of mystery or secret underneath the, the actual story and that's what you're kind of having to get to but I think as well with the Black House, there are lots of secrets. I mean, it's obviously one really big one, but there's lots of other secrets. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I think um, particularly in a community, in an island community like that, a very small island community, the secrets become huge, but they also it also kind of becomes a, a habit, you know, that they will all just keep secrets um, because that's what they do. I suppose mm -hmm. when you're living in a tiny community, you really rely on each other. But mm -hmm. equally, everybody knows absolutely everything about everybody mm -hmm. else. So mm -hmm. you, if you do have a secret, then it must be an awful struggle to, <laughs> to right? get it. And in this, in this case, actually, it's sort of an interesting generational thing, right? There's like 
there's the the people who kind of come back or the or the children they're, they're not privy to necessarily you know p parents keep secrets from their children and then those secrets you know there might be a whole you know bunch of people that have a certain age that sort of know what happened to you know joe but but their children don't know because nobody talks about any of that, right? It just, exactly, it's just sort of like yeah. it's woven into the the community at one level, and then nobody it's since nobody talks, you know, nobody talks about, it, nobody acknowledges it. So there's this whole, you know, the the new generation has no idea no, no what idea. sort of stuff is there yeah. in this tiny communities. I found that also, it felt very real and very authentic, and also really like what, you know, what is it that we do? Um, yeah, oh, and definitely. It, it, Thank it's you. It's so interesting. I mean, it, what I really, really, really enjoyed doing was that Robert's story takes place 25 years before Maggie's. Right. Um, so a lot of the characters are in both. And mm -hmm. obviously they're 25 years older uh, the mm -hmm. second time you see them. And they, some of them change hugely and some of them don't really change at all. Right. But the, part, the sort of secrets and all that part has a big effect on how or what they become the kind of person that, that they become and Absolutely. some people obviously it is, it's a very bad thing but for other people it, it, it's not and other people it's right. just a way of life so it's I found that really interesting I've never done that before I've never kind of looked at I've done stories where a, one character has maybe mm -hmm. aged certain amount but to have different characters it was really mm. it was really cool it was really challenging because I thought well some people do completely change over the course of their lives right. and are almost unrecognizable from the people that they used to be but equally um, other people just don't, don't change right at all <laughs> right at no. all despite the but despite the um you know, despite the pressures on them that would you think would create change, it just doesn't. Mm -hmm. And there are, I, you know, the the we didn't we didn't talk too much about you know. There's all these people around uh, Maggie who are you know she sort of who have different influences on her, you know, and they're you know the town itself does not really want her to be there, but begrudgingly people sort of you know take her in and and she has mm -hmm. some you know friendships and some you know some more sort of tensions between people but I do I did find that the way that they changed between the in the 25 years and in, in the, the you know reading back and forth between Maggie's timeline and Robert's timeline was really fascinating to put those pieces together and and I was mm -hmm. you know I'm curious about always curious about process when it comes to books like this do you just go do did you write like Robert Maggie Robert Maggie or did you sort of write Robert and then write Maggie do, you know how did you sort of in the process do it Oh, I did it. I always have to do it exactly as it appears in the book. Um, yeah. I know some people who sort of write the last chapter first and stuff that blows my mind. Mm -hmm. I could never, ever, ever do something like that. I think um, if there's like a, a spectrum of people who, who, I don't know, don't do any planning at all, just kind of have an idea, sit down in front of a laptop and start mm -hmm. writing. And then all the way up to people who who plan it to the point where they know exactly what goes into every single chapter. That's mm -hmm. me, you know. Oh, interesting. <laughs> right okay. at that end, I plan and I plan and then I okay. I plan some more. I know exactly what's going to happen. I think with um with Meadowland and with the Black House, um, I want there to be lots of twists and reveals, and obviously you've got the really big ones at the end. Mm -hmm. But I also really like. As a reader, I really like mm -hmm. lots of little 
Mm -hmm. kind of reveals all the way through because it, it helps with the pacing but it also kind of really kind of get keeps you interested and surprised. yeah it makes it hard to put the book down for sure and you do that yeah. really beautifully so you spend so you spend a lot of time ahead of time really yes thinking through the book and and outlining the book and and yeah. creating the twists and and then and then when you sit down to write is it easier because you're like I know what happens yeah it is for me um i usually see the 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 very kind of end first that's the mm -hmm. sort of my beginning mm -hmm. point and i always see the book as a kind of movie it sounds really weird but in my head i can see all the scenes i see how they're going to go and i kind of sit and i think about it for ages and i do that while i'm plotting and doing all the research so you know if i have to I don't know if I have to research forensics or police mm -hmm. procedures or whatever. I do all that before I start writing so that I don't have to stop. Mm -hmm. um, and then at the end, you know, I, it would take me maybe three months easily to to plot and research. Yeah. Um, but then by the end, I know exactly what I'm doing for each chapter. And I, I all I have to do is write. You know, I don't really I mean, sometimes things change because I, as I go along, I think, oh, well, that doesn't work as well as mm -hmm. I thought it would. And I have mm -hmm. to change it. But really, the, the kind of the whole first few drafts until it's kind of ready to be seen by by either my agent or, or editor is probably about um, another three, four months on top of that. So I would say at least 50, well, possibly about 50% of the time is just preparation. Yeah. And I know that some other writers, because I've spoken to them, they say, oh, I would hate that. I would hate Me to too. sit down. I'm, I'm one of them. <laughs> I would be like, if I got out to, I, first of all, I would hate to just sit, I'm not going to just not write, not writing, but also I think mm. it, I always am like, wouldn't I be like, oh, now I know the story. So I'm kind of like, oh, I don't need to write that one. I know. Yeah, that's exactly know. What, what people say to me, but I, I don't feel that way. I, I can't really describe it. I think, I think all of the kind of preparation, sort of the build up to writing is, is I get more excited about mm -hmm. writing it after that. I really yeah. want it to, to, to end up as I've got it in my head because by that point I will have had the whole thing in my head for quite a long time right I right. mean I remember I was talking to a really good writer friend of mine a few years ago about process you know because I think that's all writers ever talk to each other so right? true right right <laughs> how do you do that right yeah and she said she was a real she was the complete opposite from me she just she would just write and but we worked out that it took us about the same length of time to have a draft ready to show. It's just that mine would maybe be draft three or four and hers would be draft 10 or 11 or, you know, uh, it would be much, much more. But it needs, she needs more drafts, right? Because she's yes. just winging it. I mean, that's sort of exactly. how I feel. She's kind of doing the yeah. ideas. That she All goes, of a sudden you, you realize, oh, that isn't going to work. And you're at like mm. 30,000 words. So you have to sort of back up and pivot. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I always think it'd be lovely to be able to outline a book and be like, okay, on Monday, I'm going to write chapter, you know, but it's, it, it's <laughs> never worked for me. And I think that's the thing about writing, right? Is it just, it is it, whatever works, works. Um, definitely, definitely. And you can try new things. And I certainly have, but I mm. not successfully. <laughs> I've always been I like, think, well, yeah, I'm back. Yeah, you do. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm the same. I've tried not to plot. I've tried to do other ways um, of editing and of writing. And I think that the, the, the one that you arrived at first, that's what you're supposed to do. That's just how you, you're made. And no matter how you try and change that, that's still going to be the best, 
the best way of doing it I mean it's it can be a pain and sometimes it is a bit like oh I don't want to write the next bit you know because I know what's coming that kind of thing so you have once you've planned it out you still have to write it in order you can't just go and write a fun scene later in the book no I never ever do that I never I don't I think I'd be worried that some continuity would be lost or you know because although I've plotted it out I haven't really I almost always write in first person Mm -hmm. so I haven't really incorporated um how a character is going to be feeling by chapter Mm -hmm. 18 or whatever you know so I feel like (laughs) I just I cannot I cannot do it out of order it's Mm -hmm. I don't know it's like putting your clothes on inside out or something you know it just (laughs) right that's no that's a fair that's totally a fair analogy I love it well um, I, you know, I think it is, like you said, it's what, what, what's whatever works, which works. And so, um, yeah. and this works. So was, but Marilyn, that was your first novel or just, that was your first novel? I, well, I had written another novel before then. Yeah. Um, and it's, it, it didn't go anywhere. I, I yeah. did get an agent um, at the time, but he, he couldn't sell it. And mm-hmm. in hindsight, it was a very strange book. <laughs> I'm not well, sure. you have to have a practice. I feel like you need a practice book. That's fair. Everybody has to have a practice book. Um, no, that, that, yeah. Well, that is, I mean, for this to be your second, I mean, your second published book, it's really, it's so, it's a, such a wonderful story. And I, it's so cinematic. So I can, I can see it on the, you know, um, I can absolutely see it on the big screen. It'll be so fun to watch. I only ever want to watch the movies of books I've read. I'm like, I don't really care about the movie yes. that I haven't read, but the book I've read, I'm like, I'd love to see that made into a movie. Mm. It'd be so exciting. So I have to ask, like, you know, where do you come down, Carol, on reincarnation? <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm one of these terrible people. I'm so on the fence about everything. I'm very kind of credulous about everything. I never think, oh, definitely not. Um I'm not particularly religious. I was brought up in the Church of Scotland, which is um, Protestant. Um, and it, I find it very rigid. I find mm-hmm. a lot of, um, a lot of what they said made no sense to me, even as a child. Mm-hmm. I mean, it still doesn't make an awful lot of sense to me. Mm-hmm. But but yeah, they, I, I am really interested in religion in general. Yeah. Um, the similarities and the differences mm-hmm. but I think spiritualism in particular if I was to to kind of come down on one thing more than another I think spiritualism is the thing that interests me the most it's the thing mm-hmm. that it kind of makes a lot of sense to me um reincarnation of course is is you know a lot of different religions believe one way or another in reincarnation but it's I think it's one of these things that it's very tangible all these books all these stories are so interesting and mm-hmm. and when I you know I studied science um right. at university and mm-hmm. um I'm I think there's a lot of the scientists still in me to me something like reincarnation is really interesting even just from a scientific point of view when, when right you about these right so I, I, I agree either or I don't I I, I would completely be um happy to 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 believe somebody definitely mm-hmm. um until it was proved otherwise mm-hmm. so. exactly i love it it's hard to about those like people report near-death experiences so many of them are so yes. similar yes. like huh, 
it's, you know, it's either that the brain works in a very specific mm-hmm. way when you get that close to death. And so Absolutely. that's what people are reporting or else mm-hmm. you do, you go to the light and then you walk away from the light. I mean, it's, I find I'm sort of the same. And I, I also studied uh, science, although I, I didn't spend any time doing science. Uh, mm-hmm. I ended up in finance, which is, you know, anyway, but um, <laughs> before I was a full-time writer, but, um, but I do think it's in, I think there's a very, I, I think there's a very fine line um, between sort of, you know, sp- and I think spirituality is a lovely way of, can be religion it can be something other than than mm. religion but um but i think spirituality and science probably are much closer um connected than we we like to to consider so yeah uh, I, no i think so too i totally hear that so um now that we're you know everyone is going to devour the black house um <laughs> and we haven't ruined anything i'm so proud of us because there's <laughs> so much there to there's so many opportunities to talk about all the things we're I not know talk about. I always get really get nervous I was like oh don't give anything away no, I know no no I I think we did a really good job so we're not gonna we're not gonna talk anymore about the black house so we don't mess mm-hmm. up now when we've come so far um but I want to ask so you know what is next Carol what are you working on so I'm writing the third book um it's been the hardest actually weirdly to to do um I've been writing it for quite a while now and I'm hoping to have it sort of in a fit state for someone else to read by maybe the beginning of next year, fingers crossed. Uh, I'm really um, strange about letting other people read, even my agent, read anything I've written. It has to be at least semi-decent, you know, in good shape. I hear that, good right. Shape. I, to- I can't do it. Otherwise. I understand that. I understand that. That's, you know, <laughs> and you, the thing about having anybody read your stuff is that you can only get a first impression once. Right. So exactly, you can't just be yes. like, well, now read it this time and see. Uh-huh. It's just, it's, it's it isn't time. Uh-uh. There's <laughs> only one sort of first time. So I appreciate that exactly. as well. And is that one also sort of, is there a location that you, are you comfortable talking about it or no? Yeah. Talk- yeah. No, I am. I'm, I usually, um, I, I don't tend to go into too much detail just because I always think I'm going to jinx it somehow. I don't know. If it's uh, well, then don't. I, I understand but- that. This is a superstitious <laughs> business. So you feel free to tell us we have to wait it's um it's another gothic thriller um it's very much in the same kind of vein as Mirrorland and and the black house it's set on another island although it's a very different kind of island um but it's actually set in england this time it's off the the southeast coast of england and um it's another one where the kind of setting came first it's this it's a fictional island but it's in um a real area a real place where there are all these little islands and it's it's completely landscape wise completely different to Scotland it's incredibly flat just for miles and miles and miles and these islands are really really low lying so they're they're very much at risk from um storm surges Mm -hmm. tidal waves that kind of thing Mm. and they're surrounded by this this network of kind of really muddy creeks and sand blanks and mud flats and quicksand mm. and you know bogs that you can go into oh, fall gosh. into and never be seen again. <laughs> and it's it's on the Thames estuary. So okay. you have these tides that just go out for miles and miles and miles and miles, just this flat horizon. And then they come roaring back in you know faster mm-hmm. than a person can run. They, they people are drowned all the time on the, on these these tides. And it just comes roaring back in up to the up to these islands, 
and a lot of the um, islands are owned by the Ministry of Defence um, and they're used as firing ranges, as places mm -hmm. for them to test out ammunition and that's mm -hmm. been going on since the sort of Second World War. So there's an element of, I mean, when you go there, it's such a creepy landscape. It's very, very sinister. It's prone to sort of fog and mist. And mm -hmm. you have all these barbed wire fences and you cannot come into this bit. Right, right. So the story itself is set on this island and it's um, it's basically it's about drug smuggling. It's about um, betrayal and secrets and all the usual kind of stuff. Um, I love adultery, it. Um, murder, of course. Gotta have murder. <laughs> and, absolutely. And it's um, it's about a really kind of dysfunctional community that lives on this island. And, and again, all the kind of secrets and things that are going on underneath underneath oh, it sounds wonderful well i i do love i mean i love the way you describe your you know your your places because they're so different from what most of us have ever experienced right i mean um the the and the water elements for you um there's mm. you know and and that the way you describe that i have heard a little bit about those people do like little digs in the in the estuaries when the tames when the water goes out and then they have to be clear of it when the water comes back yeah, in. But I yeah. haven't experienced that. I think I need to, sounds like I need to plan a trip and come and um, check out some of these, these strange places. Take it, I'm going <laughs> to take the Carol Johnstone tour. Yeah. <laughs> Minus like the murder, you know, hopefully. Yeah, um, <laughs> yes. well, this is, yeah exactly. Well, this, um, it's, this was so fun. And this book is out. Actually, I think our podcast will release today and on the day of your book out it's um wow. so that's the third of january this is our first yeah. um you'll be our first uh, podcast release for 2023 Aww. and i'm i'm really excited i'm um, thank you so much for joining me and for um, letting me take a look at the black house because um it's really really it's all it's got all the things and it's i love your gothic <laughs> um your dark dark gothic books and i'm looking forward to Miraland. and what I, whatever do you have a title probably too soon no not yet not i yet. know titles are sometimes <laughs> my worst part right um but thank you it was such a so fun to talk to you oh thank you so much for having me i've loved your questions thank you danielle thank you and everybody <laughs> this has been killer women uh with our guest carol johnstone i'm danielle gerard and we will see you next time bye